Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. All right, welcome back to the Church and Culture Podcast. I am Alexis, and as always, I'm joined by Dr. James Emery White. If this is your first time tuning in, we are so glad you're here. Today and every week, you can expect to hear a pretty robust conversation between Jim and I as we explore current cultural trends, headline news, and then Jim is going to respond by discussing how Christians might think about what's unfolding in our world today, how we may respond. Um, So far, we've talked about such conflicts as the Russian and Ukrainian conflict. Last week, we talked about the rising trend of at-home hypnotism. Today, we're going to turn to another sobering topic um, that was prompted by the recent headline about the resignation of Brian Houston. He was the founding and senior pastor of Hillsong Church. Jim, can you give a quick synopsis of why he's resigning? Yeah, I only know what has been uh, in the uh, news stories, but uh, apparently he uh, spent inappropriate time with a woman in a hotel room uh, during one of his conferences. And also there was another staffer or a staffer that he was sending inappropriate text messages to of a physical sexual nature. And uh, this all came to light and uh, he has since resigned. We're gonna come back to that in just a second, but I was thinking um, as a precursor to today's conversation, I thought it worthwhile to point out that this week's conversation does pivot just a little bit from um, secular headlines to more Christian headlines. Like in other words, Houston's resignation, if you're in, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, it probably feels like a big blow because he was such a big name and has been for a while. But if you look in a secular, you know, news source, it's going to be just a blip. So since this podcast is really about engaging contemporary culture as is experienced by Christians and non-Christians alike, can you explain why this conversation is relevant beyond Christian subculture? Well, first, I would probably beg to differ politely <laughs> on whether it's a minor blip. Uh, this was covered in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and this was this was a, a fairly significant story. And one of the reasons is because Hillsong as a whole is a cultural force in terms of its music and its size. And many of its pastors are uh, so-called celebrities who have also fallen, such as Carl Lentz in New York. And, uh, and there are overtones with people of celebrity stature like Justin Bieber, who attached with Hillsong. So it, it, it's a story that had legs and really kind of caught um, mainstream media attention. But the reason it's important for us is because it is, for that reason, a significant cultural issue because it is one more black eye for the Christian faith, uh, the Christian church in the minds of a watching world. And it seems like there is just a, an ongoing you know, litany of this stuff, and particularly of late with significant names of Christian leaders falling, uh, having revealed their shadow lives. And um, so it's important to talk about because of what it is doing for the Christian faith in, in the midst of culture. Well, let's talk about that because what's interesting is that, you know, the moral failings, as we usually call them, that are ha- have been prominent in the news lately with church leaders, you know, things like sexual morality, embezzlement, abusive leadership. I'm, am I missing anything? Those are kind of like the big ones, right? <laughs> I mean, I wish you were missing something. No, I mean, it is. It's, it's, it's usually sexual in nature, power in nature, financial in nature, and then kind of a the dark shadow around all of them is pride. Well, what's so interesting about this is, you know, that list 
it's not always that shocking when we apply that to secular leaders, right? Like we kind of, unfortunately, have come to expect a certain degree of moral failing from leaders in government or major businesses. So what's the difference between how we approach these failings within the church and then how we face them outside of the church? And then I guess to piggyback on that, like, does the secular world even care how the church handles them? Well, I think I think they do because it is it comes up to a matter of our integrity. So if, for example, if the world, as we're talking about it, the secular world uh, treats these things more seriously than the church, has more whistleblowing policies, has more accountability, um, you know, takes aspects of, uh, you know, the Me Too movement, for example, more seriously than the church. In fact, something else just broke recently with Christianity Today magazine and uh, two of its, uh, one of its senior editors and another high executive, both were, uh, had multiple women making uh, accusations against them for, you uh, a sexual, you know, inappropriate behavior. Um, the, the reason it matters is because we, we are talking about our witness. We're talking about having the ability to speak into culture. And I think the world cares because it's like in their minds, all we're doing is always telling them how bad they're living or what's moral and what's not moral and what's right and what's wrong. And when, when we show that we're engaging in activity that even they wouldn't, uh, churches are tolerating things that even, you know, Apple or Microsoft wouldn't. It, it severely undermines our ability to speak into culture. Do you think that the, again, we'll just say the world because we've used that term. Do you think that the world though would look at something like how the church handles an affair, for example? And I mean, that that is more common than um, in the secular world than, um, than maybe some of these other things, but see kind of the church handle that heavy handedly and be, put off by that type of response when it is so much more common in secular society? Well, I, I think, yes. I, I mean, of course, in, there are scenarios where the church would come down hard on something that the marketplace maybe would not, but most of the time, that's not what's happening. Most of the time, what's happening is, is that the church is creating or we're uncovering very toxic cultures where behavior has been tolerated and enabled for a long time uh, and doing things that for everything from non-disclosure agreements to all kinds of stuff that the world doesn't do. You know, the secular marketplace just does not do in terms of covering up um, uh, abuse of power um, and, um, uh, you know, sexual harassment and these kinds of things. So um, I, 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 this, is, this is not a good day for the church. Let's dig into what you were talking about in terms of like a toxic culture, because you're right. Like, unfortunately, the headlines, even if the leaders are different each time, the headlines or the, the storyline tends to be similar with what you were saying, that this isn't something that happens all of a sudden, but rather there, this was maybe, you know, moral failings come at the end of a lot of conversations that did not happen or, and that should have happened or conduct that was, was overlooked or maybe in, in a more churchy way of putting this would be, you know, applying grace, you know, maybe where there should have been more justice and um, accountability. So can we talk a little bit about toxic subculture and within a church? How does that develop? Because yeah. I, I can't think that anybody sets out to have that. Oh, I think sometimes they do and they just don't realize how toxic it is, but they set out very right now. There's a lot of intentionality in creating certain types of cultures um, and I, I think we need to take the lid off of it and expose it. 
For example, it's very common now for churches to have everyone on staff and even volunteers sign a non-disclosure agreement. I think that's sinful. I, I, I just think there's no place in the church for NDAs, period. They, NDAs started in largely the tech field to uh, protect intellectual property. What intellectual property are we protecting with an NDA with the church? I mean, no, it's become a way of silencing people that are let go or that would make maybe be a whistleblower. And so I think it, that adds to a toxic culture because it gives uh, leadership uh, a lack of accountability because they've silenced anyone uh, who may have been a witness. So NDAs. Another thing is where we um, build a personality-centered church culture where it all revolves around, for example, the senior leader, and he or she becomes the brand, and they seek out to be the brand and to use the church as a platform. I think that's toxic. I think another aspect of toxic culture that's being purposefully pursued is when there is no accountability for the leadership internally. For example, it's very common now for churches to have some kind of outside board, some kind of outside team that works with the senior leader. They're not even a part of the church. They're just like pastor buds. And, you know, and they they don't know what's going on in that church. And they just, you know, dole out a salary and, and go on their merry way. And so I think we have created some toxic cultures intentionally. But I think there's something else. When the pastor, for example, is the brand, and when that's the church's identity. Um, then it becomes in everyone's supposed best interest to protect the brand. And that's what you saw with uh, uh, the whole Mars Hill mess, uh, the Willow Creek mess, even the Ravi Zacharias mess. Um, and uh, I would say much with Hill songs with multiple leaders now being you know, revealed as with uh, sexually immoral is that there was a vested interest. People knew, people knew that this had been going on for years with all of these leaders. And it was covered up. It was hushed up. NDAs were used. Um, and anything to kind of protect. And also things in the name of, well, look at all the fruit. And, 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 and again, that's also toxic way of looking at fruit. I mean, when you look at judge them by their fruit, that really involves three things. Uh, first, and this isn't original with me. John Stott wrote about this masterfully in his exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. But, um, you know, you judge, first of all, the person by their character and conduct, second, by the content of the teaching, third, on the effect of the teaching. What's happening in our world is all we're doing is looking at the third of those, the effect of a teaching, the, the popularity of a teaching, and then we automatically think that that feeds into the first two. It doesn't. <laughs> and so we've gotten that into our culture that I think is um, uh, wrong. And so we become also just fixated in a worldly way on image. You know, we can joke all day about preachers and sneakers, but I mean, it, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic that it's more about image and, and hipster uh, kind of putting yourself forward. And, 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 and you even see um, men in their 50s or 60s trying to dress like they're 20. And it's just, it, the, the world looks at it. And quite frankly, I don't think they realize, many Christians realize how nauseating it is. And how repulsive it all is. So I, I think there's a lot here that we need to, I sound like a cranky old man, don't I? But I do think there's a lot here that we need to expose and talk about that we're not talking about uh, in terms of looking at ourselves in the mirror. Well, there seems to be two sides of this conversation too, because a lot of what you described has a lot to do with the church leadership. You know, those are in positions of power, the ones who are responsible for the structure and the process and the accountability. 
But then, you know, there's also the side of, of just your average church attender and what they can contribute to toxic cultures. How, yes. how, 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 what might their role be in not only creating toxic culture, but in letting it fester? Yeah, I think that um, when the typical, one of the things that happened was with a lot of the women involved with a lot of these men was that they felt themselves, if I, if I come forward with what happened sexually, um, I'm going to ruin this person. Or they felt like, it's just me. I, I, it has to be just me. I have to be the only one. And they don't realize there's 15 others. So I do think there needs to be a culture where um, uh, we, we, we encourage people to truth tell and, and, and to surface when there's been abuse of office and sexual immorality, or if they themselves have, are getting these text messages or being, you know, I, I think that there is a sense where they're not, I mean, they're victims, but you know, you want to create a culture where it's safe to surface, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so if uh, we're enabling leaders and protecting leaders and we're just blind followers and we, we know that there's stuff, but we just love the, the, the hype and we love the, the energy and we love all the attention and we just kind of feed the egos and images of these leaders. I, think, I don't think that's healthy either. Now, can we get really- If that's where you were going, I'm not no. sure if I understood your question. Yeah. yeah, no, I think so. I mean, and I know um, at least at Mech, the church that you pastor, you talk a lot or, I mean, you, what you don't do is get up on stage and say, hi, if you've ever been abused by a leader, you should do these things. Like that's not the way that you create that subculture, at least at Mech, or, but rather you talk a lot about, you know, Matthew 18, 15 and going to people and then who you go to and the whole process of conflict resolution. And then just some sins, I would say that are just that we don't, we don't tolerate at Mech. You, you talk specifically about, you know, sins against uh, of a sexual nature against children. I mean, you definitely um, point out that there are some things that we spousal abuse. Yes, yes spousal that abuse. you are not yeah. too quiet about. What are some other things that we that you do at MEC specifically yeah. that may give church leaders insight into this? Well, as you know, we do talk very openly about coming forward as a staff. In fact, you're on a team that's a as a whistleblower team that you're on, made up of three women. Uh, two on staff, one who's a trustee, a member of our church. And we make it very known to our staff that this, these people are there and you're to go to them for anything. And I make it very clear if, if the concern is about me, you go to these people. If it's about another staff, we tell them who to go to, but, but we have a whistleblower policy that's actually written into our employment thing. Um, and so we, we wanna encourage that kind of transparency with a, a zero tolerance toward these kinds of deeds. Um, uh, there is also an enormous financial accountability at MEC that we have instituted. Um, we have uh, trustees that are members of the church and they cannot be related to a staff person even, uh, but they're members and those members are put forward every year, their names, and they're voted on by the entire membership body. Um, so they're affirmed and set aside by the members to function as trustees. They're the ones that set my salary. They're the ones that um, provide financial oversight. For example, we have an annual outside audit, uh, and that's important, an annual outside, it's not an internal audit, it's outside audit every year. And then that audit and its findings are given to the trustees. And so it's not just something that you know, we could read as a staff and bury or something, it goes to the trustees. 
So there's enormous financial accountability and every aspect of our finances is under that audit. Our general offering, our general budget, our annual giving to Christ at Christmas campaign, uh, how we use our funds for our missions 2.0 partners, everything is under this audit. We don't have anything unaudited. If we said something goes here, it goes there. I mean, and the audit, you know, verifies that. So uh, we have, I think, a lot of things internally that both of a sexual nature, addressing sexual things like whistleblower policy, as well as financial uh, things that uh, Met follows that uh, by God's grace has, you know, has served us. And when things have surfaced of a financial nature, we've, we've moved as, you know, swiftly. What are some other, I, I'm even thinking of a couple of other ways that we try to preventively not create a culture where abuse can take place. I'm even thinking of like background checks for volunteers. Oh, we do that as well. Yeah, is there yeah we, we do background checks of everyone who works with children. Uh, obviously, everyone on staff goes through a background check and, and we, go, and we, we uh, uh, go through it repeatedly. In other words, it's not like you got a background check 10 years ago and we never check again. I think it's done annually for everyone who works with children. When we started that policy, I, I said, well, let me volunteer to be the first one to get a background check. Then I can get up and say, look, I had a background check. You get a background check. You know, well, let's just do this collectively. And when we have someone go through orientation for training or something, or they're volunteering to work with kids or students, and we get to that background check part, and if they say, well, I don't want to do that, then we say, well, you know, then we're not able to use you. So that's, you know, we have that as a, as a, as a vetting process as well. Well, and I think what's also important is that, especially related to the background checks, is it's not just a one-time and then, you know, and then you can serve for as long as you want to, but I know at least at Mac, we, we renew, we, we renew the background checks yearly yeah. um, or and, and, think about that. Often. Yeah. And, and there's a limit, you know, when, when you start getting into all the different things you can do for accountability, I think that it's, it's the easiest accountability to put in is financial. The hardest to put in is sexual because financial has policies and procedures and audits. And, you know, it, you, it, I mean, yes, you can embezzle, but uh, you would probably be very difficult in the context of a robust auditing system and outside audits that are regular. Um, uh, what, what is harder to do is to, is to regulate the hotel room. And, 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 and the reason I say that is because, you know, we talk about the Billy Graham rules, you know, don't be alone with a woman and, you know, sexual fences. You've heard me talk about sexual fences that you can erect in a life. That only serves someone who doesn't want to fall. If someone is intentionally pursuing a shadow life, sexual fences are meaningless because you're not even, you know, you're just going to find a way, do what you want to do. So that's why I say that, that, Sexual offenses are, are for people who want to stay faithful. The person who's just, just charging after a, a shadow life, um, they're meaningless. I think what's so tricky about this conversation, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about, is that you know we all acknowledge that the church is a place for broken people. And so there's a certain level or degree of sin that we just expect of all people. And so when something does happen, I think our, hopefully sometimes our initial reaction is, oh, well, okay, that wasn't right, but they're a work in progress or, you know, but so how, what kinds of things should people speak out about? How do you, yeah. how do you address this? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I'm, let me put my name in the hat as a 
first up as deeply sinful and flawed. Um, and you come spend a day with me and I will disappoint you. And, um, you know, and, but I do, I do think there's a limit with, with that phrase, you know, but when we look at sin and we say, but there, but by the grace of God, go I. There's some things where I, you know, no, there, but by the grace of God, I don't go. You know, I'm not going to molest a child. Uh, that's not a temptation. You know, I'm not going to power up in a counseling situation and try to groom someone sexually or a female staffer. I, I, I think that there are things that, that we, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I can fall into a, a sexual sin as easily as anybody, but uh, that's different than being a serial adulterer. I, I you know, I, I just think that the three things that I've always looked at that I would say uh, church needs to have almost zero tolerance. Anything involving a child, uh, conduct that where you abused the office, where you actually use the power relationship or the dependent relationship as a pastor or a minister with someone like, like there was recently a, a megachurch leader in Canada uh, that very publicly resigned because it was revealed that he used the counseling relationship with a young woman who was like 30, 20 years younger than him and groomed her sexually. And that's just, that's just egregious. And, and, and um, so when you use the office that way with that kind of intentionality, that kind of predator mindset. And then third, when it's uh, habitual, you're a serial uh, offender. You're, you know, you've, you, this is your fourth church you've tried to embezzle money from. This is the fifth woman you've had an affair with. This is the, you know, this is when it's, a, when um, uh, you, you've now blown up and gone into a raging fit of anger with curse words and lashed out at staff. Now, this is the, like the ninth time in three years when you, when you see those kinds of things, you're, you're, then you're dealing with something more than just the sin that we all have, which we all are going to have failings. Um, we're talking about deep patterns, deeply pursued shadow lives. Well, another place that this can get sticky too, I think is, um, church is not knowing when to handle issues internally versus when to get authorities involved. Because I think that churches have gotten a bad rap for they, they tried to do their own type of discipline when really, you know, and maybe an external type of discipline was. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. One of the things that, that um, uh, I, I'll get a call from a pastor that says, I, we just uncovered that our youth minister was in, was having sex with a middle school girl or we just found out something in our children's ministry where there was you know uh this, there was a volunteer that groomed somebody and anyway whatever the situation may be i don't even want to fill my head with things you the first thing you do is you call the police there's a child involved there's a minor involved you call the police and you get an outside investigation third party to get into the church as find out everything you can about where else you know, someone else might have been abused. That is not something that I think you handle internally, not when it's involving the child or minor or anything like that. In fact, um, we brought up Brian Houston. Um, he took a leave of absence before any of this happened because he was under um, investigation for uh, alleged cover-up of financial, I mean, of sexual um, abuse of a child by his father. And so you, you don't do that. You, you call the police, whether he was guilty of that or not, I don't know. He's, that's still in courts. But whenever anything like that happens in a church, you, you, you don't do an internal. You 
called police. Okay. Um, let's shift a little bit to. And like, okay, I got. I, I, I'm sorry. I just got to add this. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> you because and because the reason a lot of churches want to deal with it internally is because they don't want the press. They don't want the PR disaster, and they care more about protecting the church's name and reputation than they do the victims. And so that's where we on the front end, we've got to have a mentality that is um, we're, we're prior to prioritizing the victims, not our reputation. Well, there's a lot of debate out um, there in terms of how a church does handle discipline. I mean, I, I know it varies, I think, with sin, and I know you can talk about that, but you know, some people are in the camp of, you know, we're all sinful, but we also can receive the grace of God and be restored. And so there's some in the camp who are thinking, okay, maybe dismissal, but with repentance, you could return to a position of leadership. Other people think, well, maybe not, maybe just full dismissal isn't necessary. Where, where do you land? Yeah, it depends on the case. Uh, I think that the three scenarios I I outlined earlier, uh, if a child is involved, it's an abuse of the office where you're grooming people and abuse, where it's spiritual malpractice in that sense, or if it's a serial behavior, then all three of those, I think you, I would say you can't, shouldn't be in ministry. And there's not a restoration that I would pursue. But if the opposite is true, what didn't involve a child, you know, whatever happened or whatever it was, wasn't an abuse of the office or misuse of the office, you didn't power up and, you know, like groom someone in counseling or something, or it was a, it was a one-off, you know, I mean, this is, there was no sign that this was a serial behavior, a deeply entrenched shadow life had been going on for years. This was a, an event. Then I think that you can look at restoration and you can look at uh, repentance and restoration into ministry. And I've been on both sides of that where there was no, you, this, this is, this is a one and done. Um, or I've also been on the side where I've, uh, overseen and participated in, uh, restoration after a period of time and counseling and work and so forth. Bring this up, but I almost wonder if some people who attend church are listening to this and thinking, you know, I thought everything was okay at my church. Like I thought my leaders are pretty great people, but should I be concerned? Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to like to play the devil's advocate here with that, but what would you say? No, I think I'm glad you brought it up because there was a podcast recently that I know you've listened to as well as I have. Uh, that was uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill and on everything that happened with the Mars Hill church and Mark Driscoll. It was very well done. It was fast, fascinating in a way that like you slow down, drive slowly by a car wreck. Um, and um, so it wasn't uh, an easy listen, but it was, it was fascinating. The, one of the things that I, I, I heard many pastors say that, I mean, millions of people listen to that podcast and like all of a sudden it's like it's like it, it bred suspicion. I wonder what I don't know. You know, people are wondering, gosh, all this was going on at Mars Hill and people didn't know. I wonder what I don't know about my church. And maybe I should be suspicious about how they're using missions money or suspicious about, uh, you know, whether they're, um, uh, whether there's anger issues or suspicious about whether, you know, does our church have NDAs? And it, why did that person leave? And, and on and on it goes. And it creates all this suspicion. Um, and, and pastors are going, whoa, what did I do? <laughs> what started all this? Uh, you know, and so I do think that that's a that's a that's the dark side of this being so out there on social media and talked about and sensationalized. I mean, it's terrible. And what happened at Mars Hill should have been exposed long before. But boy, what a 
what a really egregious case and church setting and leadership abuse that was that obviously does not reflect the average church and certainly not even the average large church. Well, before we run out of time, I I do want to talk about how people should respond, how an average church attender should respond to, you know, the moral failing of someone that they look up to, or, you know, let's say it even happened in their own church, because when people are caught up in this, what they're not thinking about most of the time is how my sin is going to affect other people. But the reality is, is it does. It's heartbreaking. I mean, you, you yourself, you know, I, I know that you um, were friends with Bill Hybels and you had to, to watch that as well. And I can't imagine, I don't know, will you speak into how, how that felt for you? Oh. Maybe by way of that kind of giving encouragement to people. Yeah, I was so devastated. Out. I was devastated by Bill. Bill was a friend. In fact, we were we were uh, leading a conference together in the UK shortly before the Chicago Tribune article broke. It was just a matter of a few weeks later. I had no clue. Uh, you know, I was as probably close to the Bill's ministerial orbit of any as any person could be who wasn't on staff. He's been in my home. I've been in his home. I've been in, you know, uh, uh, South Haven and been on boats and done mentoring retreats and on and on it goes. I've taught at Willow and 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 uh, it was uh, devastating to me that when this all came out, I, I felt like Billy Graham when he first heard the Nixon tapes and all the profanity and all the the way Nixon really was, he went to the bathroom and threw up, and that's how I felt. And um, I will never be able to reconcile the man I thought I knew with the man that was revealed i'll just never be able to reconcile that i mean he was the gold standard for me in terms of integrity and leadership so i get it when people are disillusioned and hurt by a leader um i have but uh you know but one of the things to remember is is that all that bill did in my life and the lives of other people all that robbie zacharias did and brian houston all these people it wasn't negated because that was God doing that. And God's working through a lot of broken vessels. And that doesn't mean, you know, if you're being used by God, you shouldn't care about integrity. It's just that, you know, it doesn't invalidate the good that God did. You know, don't take credit away from God. He was the one that did all that stuff. There was an interesting thing. I'll, uh, hopefully we have time for me to just give us a little historical footnote. Um, the church has dealt with this in terms of separating the work of God and a leader. Um, Back in the early 300s, uh, under the, um, the Diocletian persecution, uh, there was uh, what was called the Donatist controversy. And what it was, was, was that under the persecution, there were some Christian pastors who went along and turned the books over, Christian books, Bibles, over to be burned. They were called traitors. It's where we get our word traitor. The word traitor literally means one who hands over. And it goes back to that when these Christian ministers handed over books under that persecution to be burned. Well, once the persecution was over, um, the Christian church said, well, what do we do with these pastors that turned the books over, the traitors? Uh, the Donatists, under the leadership of a man named Donatists, uh, said they're out. They, they should never officiate again, should never minister again. The, the sacrament is invalidated if they do because of their sin. And then there were the Catholics, small c, was before the Roman Catholic Church, so this was just the ones that called themselves the universal church, believed that, no, they can be restored. If they repent, and, you know, there, there's restoration, they can serve again. And they went back and forth until uh, the great um, Augustine, Augustine, as I would tell, uh, waded into the argument and said, no, 
um, the efficacy of the sacrament is not based on the person who administers it. It has it itself. And so uh, not only can these people be restored, but we need to also separate the person doing the ministry from the val from the you know validity of the ministry itself. So a deeply sinful person can can you know baptize someone, and it's not like you know it, the, the efficacy is not in me. It's in the it's in the baptism. And so I think that we need to always separate uh, the men and women in leadership from the work of God. And uh, yes, we can all be conduits of it, but we're not the ones that are you know. I don't consider myself responsible for it. God's doing it and he can, you know, and I'm delighted to be along for the ride, but it has nothing to do with me, except I, I could screw it up with such horrific public sin that would, you know, take me out. And, um, you know, uh, so, um, yeah. And this has been such a great conversation. I know there's so much more we wish we could talk about, but we want to respect your time as well if you're listening to this. So um, as always, we are so glad that you joined us. Um, we hope this time was valuable for you. We hope you'll join us again next week. Um, there's a couple of things that Jim mentioned today that he's also blogged about. So you'll want to check out our show notes for this to access those. And you can. Um, and if you also want to check out some of the church and culture, um, just that is Every, day, every week blogs or the daily news that he posts, um, you can head over to churchandculture.org. Um, and then this podcast can be accessed there as well or wherever you get your podcasts. And on that note, we look forward to having you join us next week. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.